Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi everybody, welcome back to Power Players, powered by Radio.com. I am your hostess with the mostest. Danielle McCartan, DMC. This is episode eight, and I have a very special guest for you today. As always, world championship, now silver medal winner, and a two-time Olympic distance runner, Kara Goucher. Kara, thanks for joining the show. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you. I'm excited to be on. So we got to start here. I'm in the New York, New Jersey area, and I know you were born in Queens, and I wanted to first ask you about the New York City Marathon. It's the 50th anniversary of it this year, and as far as we know, it's still a go for November 1st, despite this coronavirus stuff. In the past, there's been 50,000 runners, yet here in this area, we can't even have outdoor gatherings with more than 25 people. Do you think the race will still happen? You know, I don't know. I, we want races back, but I don't see a situation where we can have 50,000 people lining up. So I know they're kicking around ideas like just an elite field, um, but I think that would be kind of sad because one of the like beautiful things about the New York City Marathon is that it brings all those people together. I'm not feeling really confident that any major marathons are going to be run this year, but I hope I'm wrong. Since it doesn't sound like it's decided yet, what changes would you like to see implemented so that maybe it still could happen? You mentioned the elite field, but what spectators? Probably not, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if you don't have spectators lined up, that's a safer, quote-unquote, experience. But that robs you of the experience of running in the streets of New York and coming off the Queensboro Bridge and all of those things. I don't know. Can you have a New York City Marathon without all those elements? I guess so. But it wouldn't really feel like the New York City Marathon, I don't think. What about, I, I've seen this idea kicked, a, a virtual marathon. That's obviously not the same, but... Do you think people would go for that? I mean, I think people are desperate just to do something. So I think we've seen a huge uptick in virtual marathons and virtual races right now. And I, I can see them doing that. I feel like it's harder with these iconic races uh, in New York or Boston that are so iconic and so much a part of our history in the U.S. as runners. And it's harder for them to do a virtual race because people want to go to New York and they want to have that experience. That is, of course, an option. But I feel like for those these bigger iconic races, that it's 
harder. I have a listener question. Erin from Palisades Park, New Jersey. She's an avid runner who thinks, by the way, that this is a quote, you're amazing. She wants to know what your favorite workout is, and I assume because she's going to want to try it. Oh my gosh. Well, it depends on what I would be training for. You know, when I was on the track, I really loved mile repeats, and I also loved speed work. 200s and 300s and 400s. When I was training for the marathon, I really liked long repeats. So I liked two-mile repeats or 5K repeats. It just kind of depends. Like right now, I'm trying to get a little speed back and trying to run a quick mile for myself. So I've been doing speed work again, which is fun. I've always liked repeats. I, I like the brain numbingness of repeats and just getting in a groove and just knocking them out. I would look it up some dates here. You had your son and then competed in the London Olympics two years later. I mean, that's some like superhuman stuff. Like, how were you able to bounce back into Olympic shape so quickly? Yeah, you know, I would not recommend that. I mean, <laughs> my son in September of 2010 and I ran the Boston Marathon six and a half months later and you know I it set me up for a lot of injuries so I definitely would not recommend it I think as a female athlete you know we don't have maternity protection I was trying to get back and prove that I still had value I think if I was ever to do it again I would listen to my body a little bit more but the, it's your body is an amazing thing and it will come back. I think at the Olympic Games, my son was about 22 months old, maybe. And at that point, I really felt like myself again. I mean, it totally felt like myself. It took me about a year. Be patient, be gentle with yourself. And I felt so much stronger after I had my son. For me, I, I know Erin from Palisades Park is an avid runner. She posts stuff all the time about running. But for me, I'm not a runner. Like the sports I played in high school, did not involve distance whatsoever. I had played softball, I played volleyball, I played basketball. So I've been actually in this quarantine running two miles pretty much every day. How can I kind of take it to the next level? I change it up a little bit. I, it's, I'm getting a little bit bored, I'll be honest. Well, that's first of all, that's awesome. You sound a lot like my sister, who was a really great basketball, soccer, softball player, and she has taken up running in quarantine as well, which is shocking to me that at 43 years old, she's decided to give this running thing a try. So right now you have a good base, right? You can run two miles a day or every, every other day or so, and that's great. And now you want to shake it up. So maybe you want to try to go three or four miles. Um, maybe one day you want to do some strides, which is where you're jogging along, and then you pick it up for 20 seconds. You run harder for 20 seconds. Just start introducing a little bit longer runs and also some change in your pace. It'll be more fun and it'll also help your fitness come along even quicker. All right. I'm going to try that. I'm going to I'm gonna have to tweet that to you, see how that works out for me. Okay. <laughs> so we originally connected on this 30 for 30, this Lance Armstrong special. Episode one was this past Sunday. Episode two is this upcoming Sunday. And I know you watched it. I actually watched it last night without the commercials. I DVR it all the time. But... What are your, I guess, first initial thoughts on what was presented in episode one? Um, not a lot of surprises. I hoped that we were going to hear from the Betsy Andreos, the Emma O'Reilly's, and the Floyd Landis's more, the Tyler Hamilton's, the people who told the truth. Um, and maybe that'll come in episode two. And then, of course, I had hoped that Lance would show a lot of remorse, you know, regret for the way he treated people. And so I, I don't know. There hasn't been a lot of surprises. It's a little frustrating to see him behind highlighted again in the same situation and I just I want the 30 for 30 for all of the other people who helped expose the doping in cycling I would like to see a 30 for 30 on them you know there was one thing that kind of struck me it was rather like I would say unremarkably he said that in his first pro season he used and this is a quote drugs that stimulate your body's own production of cortisone now first for those of us me included 
what does a stimulation in cortisone mean for an athlete competing in an individual sport? How is that an advantage? It's just the beginning of cheating, right? I mean, cortisol helps you in fight and flight and things like that. So I'm assuming it would be helpful in a race situation or a hard workout situation to help you be able to go harder and longer. That was the first time I had heard him admit that he joked his first season as a pro. And of course, there's rumors that, you know, that the EPO started a lot earlier than he said there. He has former teammates and massage therapists that they had started earlier but I was a little like okay good he at least admitted that that he has never been a professional athlete clean so for me it, it begs the question of well how good was he if you're taking drugs from the get-go I mean you know a lot of people like to argue with me on social media that you know he would have won regardless but the thing is we don't get to know now because we learned that he was cheating from the very beginning it's really interesting the emotions that people have behind it and how angry they are when, when I talk about it it's you know like good people make bad choices bad people make good choices and just you know I'm not saying he's a bad human but I'm just saying let's take the emotion out of it and let's look at his career it's stained the entire career is stained and so it's really hard to really look at anything that he did in his career with any admiration so I listened to your podcast the whole thing that you have a podcast called clean sport collective and the latest episode was with Floyd Landis he was the winner of the 2006 Tour de France who exposed the widespread doping and cycling and one word I kind of opened my notes in my phone as I he was talking he used the word institutional and he said this is a quote from him literally everyone was in on it there was no solution in that moment right Kara, when he was talking to you, was that statement something that you had believed or happened to agree with or disagree with? Yeah, look, I used to be really black and white on this, and I still am. If you dope, you're out. I, I don't have any patience for it. But I changed a little bit where I have become a little bit more empathetic. I do think he was in a situation where everyone was doping. Did he still have a choice? Of course he did. He could go home. He could say, I'm not going to do that. But I've become a little bit more empathetic where when you feel like there's nowhere to turn, of course there's still a choice, but I can how they justify it to themselves. And I, I appreciated him really walking us through his justification because when he first was a professional, he was trying to do it clean. He was racing for Motorola and they were trying to do it clean. And then he made the decision that I'm going to go to U.S. Postal Team and I'm going to cheat. That's not okay. But I think it's interesting talking to people who are willing to talk us through that because like I, I have this podcast with Team Sport Collective and our goal is to highlight clean athletes. But if we never talk to people who made the wrong choices, then how can we really learn how to prevent it? in the future and I think Floyd was talking about how there was just no one there to tell him don't do it and that's the same conversation I had with Tyler Hamilton and again it doesn't accuse it but it really needs to be a culture shift there are clean athletes in cycling unfortunately they never make it to the Peloton or the Tour de France because they're held down by people who are doping for the listeners and if you guys want to check out her podcast it's called Clean Sport Collective again but Landis he cited two reasons for the doping you said just you know go home but there's a financial gain there's bonuses for placing for winning whatever you know better than me and there's also doing it to level the playing field so do you feel I mean there's any validity in the justification no I mean look I get that you want the money and it can change your life and, and we see this in running a lot especially athletes from East Africa they win a marathon and their families are set up for generations there is incentive there to do things to cut corners because of the financial benefit and Floyd talked about that right like he went from scraping by to making a lot of money there's a lot of incentive behind it. But you know, this whole level the playing field thing, it really irritates me because it doesn't. It just doesn't. Everybody responds 
to drugs differently. So some people get a much bigger benefit from EPO than others. Some people have just a naturally higher hemoglobin. So if they take EPO, they're not going to get the kind of benefits of someone that has a naturally lower hemoglobin level. And same with testosterone and HGH. So you're not really leveling anything. And at this point, it really becomes who has the most money, who's willing to take the most risk. Lloyd was talking about when he got to postal service, they had a team doctor who was monitoring them constantly so they could do quote unquote safely. It just really becomes then about a money, like who the richer athletes are going to do well. I really can't stand that leveling playing field argument. It really falls flat on every area for me. Uh, I want to put that out there. Me too. But when he, as he was talking, I, I'm a big baseball fan and I was thinking about the steroid era in baseball and how much Landis is similar to a guy like Jose Canseco, who ultimately in his book, obviously made money off of it, but he told how widespread PEDs in baseball were. So since it's so widespread... And if you're not doing it, I guess you would not be able to beat out the guy above you for a spot on a roster or a bonus or a contract. It's just, I, I, that does, I cannot wrap my mind around something like that, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, it's a conundrum. And I feel like it really needs to be a culture shift. There needs to be a shift from us as fans. Like, what do we want to see? Do we want to see slower races that we know are clean and not as many home runs, but we know they're clean? Or are we going to keep talking about records all the time? A lot of it falls on us too. Like, if we're, are we willing to turn the other way for entertainment what do we truly care about do we really want to be telling young kids but you have to dope to make it in cycling and baseball and in running like it's just that's how it is like what are we doing there needs to be an overall culture shift and I appreciate Tyler Hamilton and Floyd Landis they got caught and there's a good chance they never would have said anything if they hadn't gotten caught but Mm -hmm. I do appreciate them willing to pull that curtain back and say hey you know what this can't keep going on and we need to learn from people like that that we can change it for the future. So the Nike Oregon project, very important to you, but this is a quote from your former coach, Alberto Salazar. And he said, no athlete within the Oregon project uses a medication against the spirit of the sport we love. What does that make you feel? It's just a blatant lie. I mean, I think there was a leaked USADA report. They're trying to take these infusions above the legal limit to get an advantage. It's just a lie. But that's what he's done. And that's what that team has done. And that's what Lance did until he couldn't lie anymore. And and that's what Floyd did. And that's what Tyler did, right? They just lie. I was on that team. I watched people taking prescription drugs they didn't need. I watched people taking inhalers they didn't need. I watched people fake dehydration to get IVs they didn't need. Those are the facts. I testified about it and there's an appeal and I'll have to testify it again. But you know, it is sort of a he said, she said in public opinion and some people agree with me and some people don't. But you had, I was reading about your relationship with Salazar and he, he was like a father figure for you. So that must've been like, oh, that must've been tough. Oh yeah. Oh no, it was terrible. I mean, it's funny now to be so removed from him and his life, but you know, he really was like a father to me and we wrote very personal letters to each other and I confided in him in so much of my life. You know, my father died when I was four years old and he really filled that void for me and there was so much trust. It's really hard to describe to people. It's like finding out that your dad is a criminal, but like a really bad one and then being put in this position of looking the other way because you love him so much and you don't want to see any harm or doing what you know in your gut is right it's taken years and it, i mean even now like when i had to testify in front of him it was a, it was I mean, honestly it was like a traumatic experience for me and i'm sure it will be again when i have to do it again i didn't know about the appeal like what is the whole process now the appeal the timeline of it and and what are you expected to say or do now it went in front of the american arbitration association and he was given a four-year ban he didn't like that so he has appealed it now we go in front of cas which is the court of arbitration of sport and whatever is decided here is final there's no appeal for this 
so it looks like it's going to be this fall. So we'll have the whole hearing all over again. And first time I testified, like three and a half, four hours, and I'll have to do it all over again and um, in front of three new arbitrators. And USAD is not backing down. Those of us that testified are not backing down. And he and with Nike's backing are not backing down. So yeah, we get to do it all over again. Wow. And with Nike's backing, that's that's like a David and Goliath sort of feel. Yeah, I mean, it felt like that the whole time, right? There was a lot of people upset because it took six, seven years for this all to happen. I mean, it was about six years before he was charged, and then we had the hearing, and it was another year plus, almost a year and a half after we had the hearing before a decision was made. You know, a lot of people are mad at USADA, but they had no control. Nike tried to block it left and right, and it is very much David and Goliath. I mean, when I testified, you know, there was nine people on his team and three people on USADA's team. But the thing is, when you have the truth on your side, you can get through the situation of being financially inferior. Um, when you have the truth on your side, and you have people willing to tell the truth. I mean, that's how he got his ban in the first place. And it's not just him, too. I just want the listening audience to know that it was it was Coach Salazar's, I'm going to call them experiments, and it was Dr. Jeffrey Brown's, kind of call them treatments, in quotes. But one thing I didn't totally understand was, what was Salazar trying to accomplish with trafficking in this testosterone? What was the point of that? How does that help? That's a great question, because first of all, testosterone is a ban substance. So why is he trafficking it? Why does he have it around his athletes? There's been a lot from his side saying, well, we were just doing experiments to find out how much it would take to test positive just in case someone ever tried to sabotage you. But it's just so ludicrous. But was it muscle cream or something? Yeah, so it's called androgel. So it's testosterone in a cream form. So you could just massage it into someone and they would get the benefits of taking testosterone and recover better. But he didn't really have to answer for that in the AAA report. So it will be interesting to see what happens in the appeal. Now, the CEO of Nike at the time was Mark Parker, and I saw an article where he wrote an email with the following sentence in it. It will be interesting to determine the minimal amount of topical male hormone required to create a positive test. Was it possible at all that maybe Parker didn't know the full extent of what was going on? No. I mean, look, that was really hard for me to see because I really like Mark Parker and I really like his family. I really believed he would be above that. But you're dealing with professional athletes. Testosterone is banned in every single sport. There's 0% chance that you're confused of if this experiment should be taking place or not. And I think that just shows that these things go all the way to the top. These people are protected all the way to the top and the most powerful athletes are with the most powerful brand and they're going to do whatever it takes to protect them. But no, unfortunately, no, there's no excuse. Once you know that someone is doing a testosterone experiment to see how much it takes to test positive and they're doing it in the Nike campus and the Nike lab, I mean, that sounds like a reason to be fired to me. Having laid all that out, would you use the same term that Landis used which was institutional. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, maybe I'm naive, but I do feel like they're, you know, in track and field, it's definitely a very dirty sport, but I do feel like there are programs and teams that are still doing it ethically. And, you know, I ran for that team. I mean, I was already target tested by USADA because an investigation had already started before I before I ever knew. But I signed over all of my personal blood work over the years. I mean, I would get my blood work done like every six weeks to make sure my iron stores were good, to make sure my cortisol wasn't too high, like I wasn't stressed or whatever. So I handed all that over to USADA and I was like, please go through this and tell me. And they gave me a clean bill of health. There were people on that team that are 100% innocent and clean. It's not like 
the Tour de France where everyone's doing it. I don't think it's that bad, but I think it's select people who are definitely protected, who, yeah, are in pretty deep at this point. I mean, obviously you're, you're a clean athlete. Were you approached to do something that either you didn't want to do or you knew it was wrong? And I obviously I know that you said no, but were you approached with it and what was it? Yeah, it was my last year at the Oregon Project. I was asked to take a thyroid medication that I didn't have a prescription for. A few months later, I was asked to take a supplement that I didn't know what it was at the World Championships. And that really was just like, that was the end for me. At that point, I was 33 years old and I had lived my entire life being proud of being clean and being proud of never skirting any line. I tried to ignore the first suggestion of a medication that I didn't have a prescription for. And then with the second one, it was just nail in the coffin. I have to get out of here. It was really sad and I feel like I was groomed over a period of years to be ready for that. But I feel grateful that I had such a history of people in my life with integrity and I feel grateful that I was married to my husband who is vocal about anti-doping. I feel grateful that that was the history I had because if I didn't have that history who knows what would have happened because it was definitely a, a grooming process to get me ready for it. That's amazing that this sounds like a predatory grooming process. Yeah I mean it's just like a slow process right and it starts yeah. with something simple as a prescription and then it's IV with something and then the next thing you know like you've crossed every line and now you're in deep. So I guess that second prescription was the moment where you were like, okay, I'm doing this. I have to say something. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be real honest. I didn't say anything. I just left the team and I told my husband, I can't do this anymore. And my husband knew, but we didn't tell anyone why I was leaving. Um, We blamed it on that. We had a baby that we needed a change of scenery. And that was in the end of 2011. And it wasn't until 2013 that I went to authorities. I was just scared. I was scared that I would lose my contract. I was scared that I would be blacklisted from races. But in 2013, I really just couldn't take it anymore. It's kind of ironic, the Lance thing, because I was watching him on on Oprah, and it must have been like late January or February of 2013, and I just couldn't stand it anymore. And after he had been interviewed, I saw Travis Tiger, the CEO of USADA, on, talking about the Armstrong case, talking about getting death threats, talking about seeing it through. I just told my husband, I said... I was in the Springs training for the Boston Marathon, and I just said, if you get me that guy, I'm going in. And he did. He got in contact with Travis Tigart, and a couple weeks later, I was in the USADA offices in front of their lawyers telling my side of the story. I was thinking, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, that both PED users, okay, whether they admit it or not, they brought more popularity to the game of baseball. You've called Salazar, like, oh, this is a quote, a win-at-all-cost person, and it's hurting the sport. But the idea behind this Oregon project, with Nike's backing... 2001 was to return American distance running to prominence and that was accomplished it's irrefutable so my question to you is without the help of these experiments and these treatments could the sport have achieved as much popularity to the extent that it actually ended up growing to yeah I mean that's a great question it's kind of philosophical right that is how we tell these stories and how we champion athletes or don't champion athletes you know I I won a medal for the Oregon Project clean at a world championship and that catapulted us and it was sort of a double-edged sword It was amazing because it pushed U.S. distance running forward. We hadn't won a medal at a championship in 15 years or something crazy like that or 12 years. But then we've won one at every single championship since in the distances. So it really did push running forward. But it also changed the culture dramatically of our team. You were no longer patted on the back and celebrated for making a world championship team. You needed to win a medal. I just feel like it's tough because, yeah, 
those things bring a lot of attention and obviously the Oregon Project had a lot of success after I left with a lot more medals and it does bring attention but what has it really done for American distance running I mean I don't really think and I could be wrong but I don't think that most kids are like I want to be like those guys I think they're more saying I want to be like the Jenny Simpsons and the Emma Coburns and the other athletes of the world that are outspoken about doping that has really made that a badge of honor that I care that my sport is clean I saw another quote from you too and we already talked about maybe being blacklisted but this is what you said standing up for what you believe in can be scary and lonely but it also can set you free I'm curious to know like were there or what were the ramifications that you felt for bringing the situation to light yeah I mean I had been at Nike for 12 and a half years and I had lived in Oregon for 10 years and I was no longer welcome I had to sort of like pack up I mean I chose to leave but I really lost, you know, my friend community. And I, you know, I was still in touch a little bit with some of them, but the much, like 90% of my friends turned their back on me. And then I started having a hard time getting into certain races. Then, you know, I've even had death threats. So it just sort of like built over time. But, you know, like I would see on message boards, some of the most famous photographers in the business bashing me or race directors bashing me openly on Facebook and things like that. That's a lot to take, you know, like I'm like, oh, well now I can't go race there even though I was planning on racing there. Um, And there were even races where I went where the meet directors told me that Salazar had asked that I be held out of the race. It just became this really difficult situation where I don't know who to trust. I don't know who's really on my side. Even now, I, I always feel a little unsafe when I'm out you know, at races. But I'm not going to let them take that from me. But I I don't know who believes me and who doesn't, really. What do you mean, unsafe during a race? Look, crazy things have happened. And like I said, I've had threats against me. And I I go to races mostly now just to be a spectator and a fan. But I always feel a little uncomfortable. Just I'm just, you know, there's crazy people out there. And there's people who don't want to see their heroes fall. They want to paint me as a you know, just this bitter, angry woman that can't let it go instead of someone that's just trying to do the right thing for the future of the sport. And again, the people that I'm up against are at the top of the sport. (laughs) I mean, it's it's Nike. It's not like it's some small brand. It's just always a little bit of me that's nervous that like, have I made too many enemies? Wow. Well, I have a listener question from Vanessa from Florida. She's actually a track and field coach and she would like to understand more in a positive light the importance of your mentoring the young women in the sport. And she actually asked particularly about Mary Kane. Yeah, look, I think it's really important that we're there for each other. I didn't have that many mentors. When I was coming up, it was sort of like we were at this weird place where we could only have one star. And so the mentors that I had, I just loved to this day. Like Joan Benoit Samuelson was one of those people that really encouraged me. And being able to train, honestly, being able to train with Shalane Flanagan, where we were both going for the same Olympic team spot. We were both going for the same podium but we decided to do it together and those experiences have really changed my life profoundly and I think it's really important that this next generation coming up knows that we can help them also one thing I love about the generation now is that we have so many stars and everyone realizes that if Shalane wins New York and if Des Linden wins Boston one doesn't subtract from the other they're just both freaking awesome athletes and I don't feel like it used to be like that but I feel like it's definitely shifted that way now now is the time to really support each other 
together because we can do big things. As far as Mary Kane, you know, she went to the program that I left and I always worried about her, always. And I had never met her, not once. And I just decided to follow her on Instagram a few years ago thinking, you know, maybe someday she's going to need someone to help her. She ended up reaching out. I just adore her. I think she's doing so much to change the culture in sport as far as like abuse against women in the sport and this culture of like being so obsessed with people's bodies. And so I just want to help elevate her voice and I want to help elevate all the women running well. And I feel like it's just more of a team atmosphere now. The women really seem to support each other and want to see each other succeed. And I love that. And for all your troubles, I guess, Kara, karma finally rewarded you. Talk about your trip to London in 2017. Oh, yeah. So, so in 2007, I won the bronze medal at the World Championships. And it was the happiest day of my life. It was very unexpected. It was I, I felt so grateful. It was the slowest championship race on record. And I just raced really savvy. And I was able to kick my way into a medal. And it changed my life profoundly. I mean, I started making money. I started flying on the Nike jet. It changed my life in a very big way. Before that, I couldn't get into a race unless my husband was running the race really it'd be like he was the bigger star and I I couldn't get into a race unless he was also going to race there and then after that just all these doors opened I could run wherever I wanted and it was such an amazing experience for me and I never looked back on it not one time in any negative light and then in 2017 I get home from a run and I have a phone call from a reporter from Sports Illustrated he said how does it feel to be world silver medalist and I was like, what? <laughs> so there's a there's a 10-year statute of limitations on all metals. So if they discover that someone doped 11 years after the fact, it's too late, which I don't agree with, but that's just how it is. So they have started retesting samples eight years out. So when you're running at the World Championships, you get tested before competition. And then if you do well, you get blood and urine tested after the race. And they store those samples for 10 years. And so they had retested some of the samples. And the woman in front of me tested positive for stands and all. And at the time, it was just undetectable in her sample. But now with better testing eight years on so yeah so fast forward she fought it for a while and then she admitted it so she was officially removed from the results and given a ban in 2017 my husband and son and I got to fly to London and stand on the proper place on the podium with Joe Pavey of Great Britain who had been fourth Mm. who you know really should have been third it was a weird experience because it made me a little sad that we never had that and that you know it was kind of like here's your medals okay let's get to the track meet and Mm. I was like no we we were those people we just got robbed of that but I did really really appreciate it. And we think for both of us, she has two children and I have a child. And it just was like seeing them wave our flags. I think it meant more to me, honestly, 10 years out than it did 10 years earlier. So you're informed about it by an answering machine message from a Sports Illustrated reporter. That's kind of funny. Yeah, it's crazy. And actually, you know, they didn't have our medals that day. I just received my medal right as quarantine started, 12 and a half years. What's going through your mind when you held it in your hands for the first time? So I got flowers that morning from USA Track and Field and and they said, sorry, this took so long. So I knew, I was like, oh my God, it's actually coming, actually going to be here. Um, And it showed up and I was planning on two runs that day and it it showed up in the afternoon and I didn't open it. I knew what it was. What? And I just told my husband, yeah, I don't know. I just said, I'm not ready because I know this is going to make me feel a lot of feels. It's like a closure on this chapter that just never seems to end but I'm just not ready yet and so I went out and ran and then we went out and picked up my favorite sushi it was like at the start of quarantine so there was no restaurants open but they did have pickup and meanwhile while I was out running my husband had organized a zoom call so anyway we got back with the sushi and then he and my son presented it to me and my family got to watch it was just weird if I'm being honest it was just like all of this emotion and thoughts and frustration over the last 12 years and then it's just like here it is so I mean I'm happy to have 
have it. And I'm happy to, I'm really happy to close that chapter and move forward. Did you have to give the bronze one back? I didn't. And, you know, I brought it to London in 2017 when I, when we had that upgrade. And my son never knew that I wanted metal. And in fact, when we moved to Portland, I almost gave my metal away to Goodwill because I had all these clothes stacked that I was giving away. And as we were loading them on the truck, the metal fell out. I probably only opened, I mean, when I won it, I showed it to everyone for like three months. But I had not <laughs> opened that box in probably eight years. When I got this call, I went into our basement and I found it. And my son was like, you won this? Like he didn't even know. <laughs> um, so it was in great condition. So I just assumed that I would turn it in because it was like perfectly clean. It still had like the creases, how they set it in the box perfectly. So I brought it to London and they didn't ask for it back. So it's kind of funny. So I have a bronze medal. I have a placeholder silver medallion and I have the silver medal. So I got three medals for one race. In your opinion, what's the definition? If, if you were the Kara Goucher dictionary, what's the definition between banned and unethical? Oh, that's that's a tough one, right? I like to keep it really simple and say, if it's on the ban list, don't do it. That eliminates a lot of the wondering for me. Like if it's on this list, you just can't take it. Now there's always people that are trying stuff. For instance, some of these thyroid medications, they may help your performance, but if you can get a doctor to prescribe it for you, that becomes more unethical, right? Because it's not actually banned. I just kind of want people to think like, okay, it becomes blurry, right? Because some people are gonna take iron because they wanna have better hermatograt and hemoglobin levels, and I get all that. And so where is the line where you say, no, you can't take anything? Some people are taking Advil because they're sore and they need to get through a workout wall. Are they unethical? So it's a really, really difficult line. So even though I do think there's a lot of unethical stuff that goes on, I really can't make that definition. And instead I'll just say, if it's banned, it's banned, follow the rules. It is not your right to compete at the highest level of sport. It is a privilege and there are rules and regulations that you follow. And if you can't follow those rules, bye. Well, at the top of the show, I introduced you as a two-time Olympian, but you're actually 60 seconds from becoming a three time Olympian. For the listening audience, Nike developed these shoes that your competition carrier was wearing at the time trial, but you were not. The legal shoes alleged that they made the wearer run 4% faster. In that moment, do you regret kind of the whole breakup with Nike and not wearing them? by missing the Olympics by, what was it, 60, 65 seconds? Yeah, look, I've never, I'll never regret leaving Nike. It just was not a company that aligns with who I am. And so, no. I feel sad that there's a possibility that I should have been on a third Olympic team. But again, we don't get to know. I don't get to go back in time and race that race over. And those Olympics have come and gone. What I want now is I don't want anyone to have to wonder like I do. You know, mm -hmm. it's four years later and I still wonder. I still wonder. I think, well, the lab and research shows that some of those athletes are getting a 5 to 6% advantage and that's easily more than 60 seconds in a marathon at the right. pace we were running. But does that mean that I would have beat them? There's no way to know. So now my fight on the shoes <laughs> is just that it's a level playing. This is one of those situations that's really tricky because you have one company that came out with it first and it was kind of like when I raced in those trials, no one knew about the technology except for the athletes that were wearing it. But now we know about it. If we're gonna allow this technology, what do we do to ensure that everyone has the same technology? And you know, I've been disappointed with the regulations so far. I looked to swimming, which had suits, the full body suits, and people were swimming super fast. Swimming let them have it for a while, and then they went back and said, you know what, this is changing our sport in a way that we're not comfortable. And they went back and banned them. And all the time stood, and all the performances stood, but they realized that the integrity of their sport was at stake and I really really hope that we get to some point like that with running you know the marathon is supposed to be hard it's supposed to be a war of attrition it's supposed to be physiologically really really hard and now we're seeing so many fast marathons
marathons and we're seeing close races and we're hearing athletes say my legs like they felt great with the last two miles to go well that's not the marathon you know right. the marathon is supposed to be like you're dying and that's what makes it so special and that's what made it so hard and unique so I just think world athletics needs to really think about what does this do for the future of the sport and is that what they want I'm sad to see the direction they've taken it so far but I'm glad that they did set at least some guidelines so that we can have some sort of regulation there because you know what we really don't want to be seeing a shoe beat a shoe we want to see an athlete beat an athlete while the shoes aren't banned they certainly i think we can both agree that they're unethical and like you mentioned briefly it's the nike vapofly swimsuits too they make a swimmer four percent faster to backtrack just a second i mean it was your teammate that that was wearing them and it was your brother-in-law who helped develop the shoes i mean did your relationship suffer with either or both of them after that yeah i mean it was really hard for me I'm not going to lie. Just a lot of tears about, I mean, you know, I didn't know about the shoes. You know, I ran that race. I ran my heart out. And all three women that finished ahead of me are good women. They're good people. And they're really good athletes. Des has won Boston. Shalane has won New York. Amy Hastings won a bronze medal at the World Championships in the marathon. It's not like I lost to people that I didn't believe could beat me. You know, so I, I walked away from that. You know, my ego was hurt, but I lost to really amazing athletes. Finding out that maybe, and again, I cannot say for sure, but that maybe shoe technology affected the outcome. It's just really an icky feeling. And it leaves me a lot of the feeling of when I think about other races I've run in the past where certain athletes were in there that I knew weren't clean. And then I have to kind of wonder. And I, I'm not, to be clear, I'm not accusing them of being anything like a doper at all. It just leaves me with that feeling and that unknowing. And the fact that, you know, yeah, my brother-in-law developed that shoe and one of my close friends is wearing it. I have to remove that because I love them. I cried a lot about it, but I'm not going to let a shoe cost me my relationship with my family or with a former teammate who I really adore. Does it hurt? Yeah, it hurts. But you know what? Life is short. So I'm, I've moved on mostly. Yeah. But who, in your opinion, has the responsibility to make the decision now? Is it the Nike itself? Is it the company? Are there committees? What about do the athletes just say, listen, we are stopping the use of it, whether it be the swimsuits or the shoes or the doping? Who, who ultimately is in control of stopping it? Unfortunately, I mean, it's the governing bodies who don't seem to care. I think if you ask athletes, you know, we, on the Team Sport Collective, we asked a lot of athletes leading up to marathon trials about the shoe technology, and 9 out of 10 hated it, but they said it's part of the game now. So why weren't these athletes consulted, right? Why, why didn't anyone talk to the athletes? who are like, I don't like this. I don't like how the sport is changing. And same with doping. I feel like there's not a lot of, the athlete voice is supposed to be important, but I feel like it kind of falls on deaf ears. And when you become an athlete that speaks out, you're kind of labeled like a troublemaker. Mm-hmm. I do feel like athletes need to come together. And, you know, that's why we started the Team Sport Collective as a place for like-minded people who want to see an end to this culture of doping, a place where they could go and share their frustrations and hopefully educate so that we can change the future. But the athletes need to really come together because they have more power than they think. Because at the end of the day, if the athlete decides to not compete, the governing bodies, the IOC, all the money poured in, it's nothing. You have to have the athletes. So the athletes do have power. They just need to figure out a way to come together and use that power to make change. We're not talking about the Olympics. I mean, this... All of this exists in your current phase of competition, which seems to be marathons now. And... It directly applies to you because I looked up some finishing, some places here. Kenyan, Rita Jeptu, she won the 2013 Boston Marathon, the women's. She came in first place. You came in sixth. She tests positive for EPO, which is, by the way, Lance Armstrong's method of choice. First, for the listening audience, what is the benefit of EPO and, and 
What is the benefit of having more red blood cells? So it increases your oxygen carrying capacity in your blood. So it allows you to train harder, to run farther. You just don't get as tired and you're able to push your body to new height. It also can be used in recovery as well. So you recover quicker. So maybe you do a really hard session and then you would need 48 hours to recover from that. But if you're doing some of these drugs, you can be back at it day later or two days later instead of waiting for that third day. So it's right. just, and now you're training in a way that's not humanly possible, right? So now you're training in a way that I don't care how gifted and talented you are, you actually can't do that because your body will break down. EPO is a particularly icky drug. It's hard to detect. It just ruined the outcome of a lot of endurance events. Years later, after all of you have been through, Kara, you've been fighting this, the good fight for how long, you're still up against it. How does that make you feel? I'm not very fast anymore and I really just run for fun, but I am very passionate about protecting the people who are still in it and the people who will be in it in 10 years. It's very frustrating and I'll be honest, there are nights where I just am like, I'm over it. I can't do it. I cannot worry about this anymore. It's such a thankless position to be in. It just seems like it's never ending and I think I'm done. I'm going to take all this time and energy and do something else with it. You know, then you wake up the next day and you're kind of fired up and you decide to fight another day. Yeah, there are good days and bad days, but I mean, what's the alternative? I quit and then I just say, you know what? You broke me. I can't let them break me. No way. Being in, as invested as you are, I mean, we talked a little bit about gathering the athletes together, maybe maybe a ban on competition or like a sit out, I guess, of competition. But what about incentivizing and empowering people like you who stand up and do the right thing? Is that a, a pragmatic solution to this? Yeah, I do think that that could be something really great. And our World Athletics president said this a couple of years ago. He said, we need to make whistleblowers feel safe and we need to reward them. Yet nothing's come of that. So mm -hmm. it was really just lip service. But I think it's always lonely. But I do feel like the more that people come out, the easier it can be. And I mean, you know, there are people who have made bad choices. In my opinion, then you can't be in sport anymore. But that doesn't necessarily make you a bad person. And you can take those bad choices and you can make really, really good change from it. So I think we need to really shift it so that we encourage whistleblowers to come forward. And, and you know, not every whistleblower has done something. There are plenty of athletes who have seen things that made them uncomfortable and left the situation, but they just didn't tell anyone. And anytime someone speaks up and we just try to destroy them in the media, that's not healthy. I would really love to see a culture shift where people who tell the truth are rewarded. And I'm not maybe not financially, but they're rewarded. They're given a place and we take them seriously. And my final question is this, Kara. If you could look into a crystal ball right now in your quarantine house, tell me what the future says about your sport. Oh, I love my sport so much. I love distance running so much. I am worried about where it's headed. I'm worried about the changes in the last four years due to shoe technology. I'm worried about the doping, but I have to keep taking myself back to happy moments. Seeing Shalane Flanagan win the New York City Marathon, seeing Desi Linden win the Boston Marathon, seeing Emma Coburn and Courtney Frerichs go one-two in the steeplechase at the World Championships in 2017. There's so much joy and beauty to be had in it. I just think that if we remain focused on what our sport was meant to be, which is just like a, a competition of athlete versus athlete and nothing else is supposed to be so pure. If we can really focus on the purity of it, I feel like we can get through it. And there's always gonna be people taking shortcuts. There's just no way around it. If we can make the culture be that we celebrate the people doing it the right way, then I think we have a lot of beautiful times ahead. Well, Kara, 
Thank you so much for sharing your story with me and with my listening audience today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. I was listening to a bunch of your podcasts. So thank you. This is cool. I feel special to be a part of your lineup. Thanks for tuning in to episode eight of Power Players powered by radio.com. To hear the stories of other power players in my women in sports lineup, search Power Players wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned to my social media channels for the announcement of my next guest at Coach M-C-C-A-R-T-A-N on Twitter and Facebook.com slash Coach McCartan. See you next time. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.